Welcome to Real Eyes Realize. This is a podcast where we feature everyday people making ripple effects, actualizing love in their families, communities, and in our world at large. That's why we call it Real Eyes. So we welcome each guest on the show with the intent to create positive change in our world. And as a listener, you can do so by listening and taking action in your own world. For now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. And here we go. Well, so I wanted to welcome Julia Midland to our podcast, Real Eyes, Realize. And to introduce Julia today, first of all, she has worked in international policy and humanitarian aid for over 15 years. And so we're excited to talk to her more about her specialty in gender and conflict and working across numerous sectors for everything from education to humanitarian assistance, governance, health, and counter-trafficking, illicit finance, and counter-terrorism. She's worked across the globe, particularly in conflict and post-conflict environments, such as Somalia, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and has given, has given her, and this has given her an acute understanding of the problems with the typical aid model and insight into how to make developmental programming more sustainable through equitable community-centered intervention. She's the founder of Own Empowerment Project, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering individuals in marginalized and at-risk communities worldwide. And we'll be finding out more about the Own Empowerment Project during this interview. We're so excited to find out more about the sparks behind this important organization and this a lovely woman, and as well as finding out some of the pivots that have been made during COVID time. I came to know Julia through her leadership in a training program that she was hosting called Sustainable Service, Delivering Community-Centered Programming. And this was a virtual course where Julia brought her straightforward approach and her knowledge-based experience for really spotlighting an approach to conscious activism in the world. And I am so honored to have her as a guest on this podcast today. So thank you, Julia, for joining us. And I can't wait to dive in. Welcome. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Um, and also so humbling to hear your bio read back to you. I, I you know, I mean, it, it's my life and, and I, it's obviously my experience, but to hear it in words when other people say it is, is a whole new experience. So, yeah, well, I'm so, and I think this whole podcast, what we go into is the, the lenses and the mirrors that we have all around us. And so it's beautiful to reflect that back to you, all of your hard work. Um, and as you know, Realize Realize is all about people creating positive ripple effects in their communities and at the world in lar at large. And so I'm really curious about the communities that you care so deeply about and how you got started. You've been at this over 15 years. So what's the story behind the why? Yeah. Um, God, it's such a good question. You know, I, um, I'm incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity throughout my entire life of living um, and being in, in communities throughout the world. So I was born in and grew up in China. Um, until I was seven. And this was back in the day, you know, China was still poor. Um, it was it's a very different country than it is now. Um, but because we lived in developing countries, I hate to use that term. I just want to name that. Um, I just can't in this moment, can't think of you. Sometimes people use global North, global South. Um, mm -hmm. but I don't actually like any of the terminology around okay. it. Um, so I will just say, I guess, devel developing economy countries, um, but, you know, because I was growing up in these spaces, I, I was really lucky in that, you know, from the beginning of my, my first memories are of not me being in the dominant culture and not mm. me being the dominant like face in the room. 
Yeah. Uh, I went to tiny school. We, you know, when we went on vacation, it was to places that where there just, there weren't a lot of other white people. Um, and so I think, you know, from a really, from a really young age, I had, I'm really blessed to have had um, really an acute understanding that the world was bigger than just, mm. than just me. Um, and it was bigger than my quote unquote home culture. Yeah. And, um, and that there was so much to learn from the communities that I lived in and so much to be, to learn just from the experiences that I had that were outside of what was called my culture. Sure. Um, and that made a huge imprint um, on my life. I mean, that's, that's literally where this all began. Mm. Um, and my parents have always been really, uh, really interested in service projects. So it was, you know, I remember like planting trees as part of the great green wall and, you know, just being in these, being in service projects, having been raised by parents who really felt that it was, um, their duty and my duty as a white American to, use that positionality, that social positionality, um, in a way that helped to disrupt the systems that kept us at the top. And this is something that, you know, I know a lot of us are talking about now. I yes. never had the words as a seven-year-old for privilege or white supremacy, but even in, you know, my, even in Beijing in the early eighties, um, you know, where I was the only white kid, there was yeah. still something about me. And now I, now I can identify that as whiteness that still made me different, not just because the way I looked, but made me sort of elevated in some strange way. And I could always mm. feel that even though I didn't know what it was. Sure. Um, and so that again, combined with parents who like really sort of pushed um, for us to get out into the world and to experience and to volunteer and to not just volunteer in a way that it was like giving things to people, but to like yes. really try and disrupt the systems and speak out. Yes. Um, really laid the foundation. Like I, I really can't for, for most of my childhood, I wanted to be a doctor, but really like looking back on it, there was no other career choice. For me, right? Like this was always what I was going to do. Right. I just didn't know it until like, for a really long time. <laughs> but you were like born into this, here you are. And this is your, this is your path. I yeah, love yeah, that. Absolutely. I mean, and, and it's the only career I've ever had. I've, you know, I've been in different, different phases of this particular work. I've worked, like I said, like, like you said, I've worked in policy and I've worked in, you know, in, in, in direct field work and I've worked in evaluation and, 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 um, it, you know, all these different sort of facets of the work, but it's always been this international development. Sure, sure. Um, you know, yeah. what comes to, it comes to me now, um, because I know how much, like you said, you know, if you, you know, you grew up with this and there had to have been, I'm sure a multitude of individuals, a particular person or a family who's, um, kind of whose story made a lasting imprint on your heart, um, whether or not it's what they've had to overcome or that gives you that deeper sense of purpose for why you're doing what you're doing. Anything come to mind? You know, it's, uh, this is going to sound maybe, uh, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, honestly, is really like my first under my, the first time I, I can remember understanding that we have things that other people didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because we had a nanny, I had a nanny um, through when we were in China, my parents were, were diplomats. So they were traveling all the time. And so mm -hmm. my nanny wasn't just like there for a day a week. You know, she was, she was like my, my mother. Yes. Um, and I remember one day she took me to her home and I, this has really stuck in my mind because I must've been four, but I, it is a very vivid memory for me. Sure. Um, and it was, you know, a traditional old Chinese hutong where, you know, you have multiple generations that are all living in the same structure. And it's, it's generally a square space with a courtyard in the middle. Mm -hmm. And, and I, 
I remember seeing where she lived mm. and somehow understanding that that was what was normal um, in the culture that I was living in. Uh-huh. Um, and then returning to my, I mean, you know, we didn't live in like a massive house or anything. It was an apartment, but it was still like an apartment in a diplomatic compound where I had a nanny. Um, and we didn't live with my grandparents or my aunts or uncles. Um, and so there was something about, you know, I, when we left Beijing, when I was seven, this was, you know, before Facebook and all the things. So I have never spoken to her since, but mm -hmm. that memory, I think has really had a huge impact on my life in the sense that it was that first time that I, I really, really understood. Absolutely. Interesting. And so you kind of consider that a seed maybe that was in some way planted that became this awareness that you've been able to massage and nurture and understand even deeper. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. I mean, you know, I can come up with lots of stories from my travels around why I like focus on specific things or why I've chosen like a certain type of work. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's really the very beginning. Um, That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, what I'd love to know more about is um, I know the Own Powerment Project has such a manifestation for you. Talk about planting seeds and then taking a look at, you know, how is it that you're able to bring that project to full fruition and what is it that it's actually doing in terms of helping marginalized and or at-risk communities. So tell us more about how that got started, a little bit of the evolution of it and uh, what's going on with it today, here and now. Sure. I mean, and that, this is a bit of a longer story. So that's great. <laughs> so that's great. Jump in and pause me at any time, but, okay, cool. um, you know, as you mentioned, I've, I've been in this career for a long time and, and there's an interesting thing about this type of work, um, which I believe is still a reality today in a mm -hmm. lot of, for a lot of organizations, which is that you know, you're, you're in your early twenties. You're like just starting your career. If people like me, especially are like willing to go and do all the, 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 the risky things, right? Like my yeah. first field mission was to Afghanistan. Right. And I didn't, this was in 2005, right? Like legitimately, we were legit, literally at war. Action. Right. Yes. And, um, and, and I was like, yep, yeah, sure. Sign me up. Put me on the plane. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny when you think back on things that you did when you were younger, right. Um, but the, the thing about this type of work is it's exciting, right? But yeah. nobody really prepares you for what happens mm. um, in, in, this, in places like that. And, you know, I, I feel like I was at more of an advantage than a lot of people because I had, I had seen real poverty. Yep. Um, and I had seen sort of that level of like what the rest of the world looks like. So that aspect wasn't shocking to me. Yeah. And yet... Right. Mm. You know, nobody, uh, you know, I was taught how to carry a weapon and use a weapon. You know, I was taught how to be a good hostage and what to do if I was kidnapped and, and all these things, but nobody right. was ever like, Oh, and by the way, make sure you get enough sleep because if you don't, you might not actually be effective at your job mm. or make sure to take breaks and eat well. And, you know, all the little things that, that, um, that really, um, are so much of a core component of self-care. And I don't mean yes. like bubble baths and all of the things that actually do require money and access. I mean, yes. breath, right. Yep. Connection to breath, literally just stepping away and taking, taking a moment, right. Little things like that. Nobody ever really tells you how important mm -hmm. that is. Mm -hmm. And so what happens, and, and I'm going to try and remember to speak from I, in my experience, even though I, I know it's, it's more of a general and universal problem, like, because I can only speak for myself. Yes. Um, but what I've seen is that there's a, a whole lot of burnout in this field. Um, and especially in the aid world, you don't see a lot of 40 year olds, 
it, who are still in this work. And there's a reason for that. And it's because the job is hard. It's really hard and it's really long days and really long hours and months on end without seeing your family and friends. And you miss everything. I've missed like most of my friends, weddings, the birth of their children, birth, like all the things, right? Because yeah. you can't just hop on a plane from cartoons. Right. You're in the fields, um, yeah. Right. And, and it's hard. And, and yet it could be made so much better with just a little bit more, I think, training on the front end um, to, to sort of help people get into this work. So I name all this because... I um, sort of survived that level of the work and I, I was super burnt out um, in my mid thirties. Like mm -hmm. I, I really was so disconnected from myself and my body, mm. um, not paying attention to any of the signs that I needed to take a break because I was stuck in a cycle of, well, if I take a break, someone's going to die. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true in this, in the place where I was working, maybe that was true. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter because that's all that re that all that exists in your head. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in that place, I, um, put myself in a really dangerous situation. It, I was in Mogadishu in Somalia and I, there was, there was gunfire outside and, you know, normally people would be like, Oh my God, let me duck and cover and like, hide under bed. <laughs> and my body was like, let's go outside and see what's happening. You know? And it's like, it's like, I can laugh about it now, but it's really not funny. Yeah, not right? like my life was put at risk. And so was the person who had to come and pull me back inside. Yes. And that was a real wake up call for me. Thank God. Right. Cause if it hadn't been a wake up call, who knows where I would have been, but it was a real wake up call. Like I needed to do something or I wasn't going to survive in this world literally and figuratively. Um, and so I, you know, I find, I feel really fortunate because it was around that time in my life when my yoga practice was deepening and becoming a real yoga practice. Right. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I came into the yoga world through asana. I think a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to like sit in chair and like do the hard things and sweat <laughs> and, you know, right. get strong. And, and that's, you know, that's fine, but it's also not really <laughs> yoga. But yes. The foundations um, of yoga. But because I've always been spiritual, like at some point it just sort of all came together for, for me. I can imagine. And, and luckily for me, it happened to be at around the same time that I was burnt, like burning out. Uh, and like why all that happened to coincide, I will never know, but uh, it did. And that changed the trajectory of everything that I did afterwards. So I was in a place of burnout and I was able to recognize it because I yes. had this deeper yoga practice and I could, at that point I could check in and say, I'm super dysregulated right now. Yes. I need a, B, C, D, E. Yeah. I need to take a break. I need to connect with my breath. I need to, you know, consult a therapist. Yeah. Right. Um, and that level of, of knowledge of understanding what my body need needed allowed me to heal mm -hmm. and get back into the work in a way mm -hmm. that was stronger mm -hmm. more resilience, but it also really opened my eyes to the reality that, you know, all the tools that I needed with the exception of of a therapist, which right. I don't, and I don't want to like say that that's not important because it really was for me. But I know accessibility is really key for you in terms yeah, of what's absolutely. accessible to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and for me, it was in addition to the therapist, it was, you know, everything else was inside of me, you know, like I had a connection to my breath. I could move my body. I could do all these things. And, and so these problems that I had sort of always, or I had been seeing like the whiteness of yoga spaces, for example, became so much more prevalent to me mm. because I would be going, I was living in London at the time and I'd go back to London and I'd go into a yoga studio to practice, but I was surrounded by people who looked just like me, which was, yeah. you know, like the thin bendy white women. Um, and then I'd go back into my work world and I'd be 
you know, sitting mm. in women's circles with these incredible people who didn't look like that yes. and didn't live in the UK. And nobody had ever given them this awareness that like, you know, to connect to their breath. And, and I yeah. don't want to insinuate that I think that connection to your breath will save your life or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. like, or change, you know, systemic oppression. Right. And yet there's something about that level of awareness and just the fact that it was available to some parts of the world mm-hmm. and not other parts mm-hmm. of the world became so much clearer to me. Absolutely. Uh, and also just really infuriating. So, <laughs> um, so there's part of you, what I'm hearing is you wanted to bridge the gap, but there's also this catalyst inside that was like, okay, so when I, you know, I'm going through burnout, this, these are some things that helped me and why aren't these tools available and accessible to others? Exactly. exactly. And it can be that easy to a certain extent. Right. Um, so when you go into a community and you're looking to, you know, teach the kinds of things around self-regulation and um, how receptive are the communities? What do you find and how sustainable do you think that is when you're in there and you may not be able to be in there for long periods of time? Right. I mean, and th- these are really great questions and they're also really um, central to what we do. So, you know, again, I just want to, I just want to reiterate that like these practices aren't going to change like the structures that have created refugees or feed people or clothe people. But there, there has been so little focus on mental health in so many of these scenarios that it Mm -hmm. felt like the missing piece. I knew that I couldn't feed everyone in the world, but I felt like what I could do, my piece would be to bring these tools into communities to at least give that one step, like that one extra thing that wasn't there. Um, but it was really important to me that it was done in a way that didn't perpetuate the hierarchy of yeah. so much of the aid world already, which is top down, you know, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give you something that you don't have, and then I'm going to leave, um, which is so prevalent in so much of the aid world. And that I had no interest in that. Yeah. Um, I also, I didn't want to be like a yoga teacher who came in and taught for a few weeks and then was like, well, good luck with that, you know. Well, I'm, done, I'm done. back to London now. So it was really important to me in designing um, programming for these communities that it, that what we did was actually to go in and work with community leaders nice. to tap into their own innate knowledge of the tools, because we all have an innate knowledge of, of, you know, connection to breath. We just need to remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also tap into the power of the voice and the power of like those leaders within their own communities, the, the, the power of those leaders to know what their communities need in a way that I never will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the purpose of living, breathing it, that, that, that's the, you know, feet on the ground, living, breathing. This is what, yes, we're here. Yes, 100%. And mm-hmm. so the purpose of Own empowerment as an organization is, isn't to go in and teach yoga or to, to teach like a, a tool, a, a training in, in tools self-regulation. It's actually to empower community leaders with an embodied understanding of the tools. We do a lot of embodiment exercises so that they can then, um, offer them to others. Mm. Right. And, and I can leave and the, the practices remain and are become more sustainable because there's no need for me to go back. Yes. These leaders have everything that they need within themselves. Now they remember it and they can give it to others. And they're the, then the ripple effect moves throughout the community and more and more people can learn these tools. Yeah. I would imagine it also grows in a unique way, depending on some of the cultural customs and depending on who the leaders are and maybe adding some of their own, um, you know, twists or their own kind of character or style. Do you, do you, do you go back or do you hear from these community leaders? What does that look like to kind of see what happens after oh, you? 
started planting the seeds or started the ripple. You know, it's so beautiful. We see it just in the trainings that we do because everything we, we have sort of a base model, a base methodology, but every training is different in the sense that we're always co-creating the space with the communities that we're working with. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to Kenya, I happen to have spent a lot of time in Kenya. So I know a little bit about the communities there. Um, And so in that space of co-creation, I know that one of the things we want to include is a lot of like song and dance and, you know, bring in the drums and, you know, whatever they want, but there's that aspect of co-creation in all of the communities that we work with so that it's not just us coming in, but we're working with them to understand what they want and what they need to then design the training that way. And so, yeah, you're right. Like everywhere it looks different. There's always, there's, there's song or there's art or there's, dance um and there's yeah. just different ways of viewing that's it and yeah. um, we haven't actually sorry <laughs> no no no. i'm just saying it's like expression right and expression has so many different um tones it's like you know when you take a look at the color wheel it's like multiple different shades of so many different colors and what a beautiful way for us to look at that right oh absolutely yeah i mean we haven't had the opportunity to, to physically go back to any of the communities that we originally worked in. We, it was our intention to do so in 2020. Um, and I know we'll talk about the pivot later, but we were going to go back to Kenya. And, and so, so the, our purpose for going back would be to, to follow up. I mean, we have a certain amount of ability to follow up without physically going back because we have um, engagement with community leaders on the ground that can sure. let us know how things are going. Um, but our real reason for wanting to go back is to then run a second training and have uh, those who went through the first round assist us so that they're then building their capacity even further. Makes sense. Um, And we were meant to do that in Kenya this year and then, you know, COVID. So we were meant to do it in Myanmar as well. And, you know, COVID. So it's something that we still plan to do. (laughs) Exactly. It's just like post COVID. We've got to find a time where that feels right. Um, I do want to get into that. I do want to talk about that pivot that's happened. Um, Before though, I'm curious because you talked a lot about like your growing up and what you saw when you were four and kind of the whole thought about, you know, and I, and I know from just hearing you talk, there is a real differentiation um, that you talk through between equity and inequity, um, equality and justice. And so I'm curious what your perspective is, if you could share that with our listeners and how does that tie into, you mentioned like typical aid models Mm -hmm. that maybe are not as well equipped to be able to take a look at sustainable community led, you know, like organizations. So tell me what your thoughts are about the future. Like how do you take a look at that whole difference between again, inequity, or inequality, equity, mm-hmm. justice, and then what's possible? Yeah, you know, and and the the model that I love to show, and I know I know you saw it in the course, um, but maybe we can add it to the resource page actually, just as an image. Sure, absolutely. Um, is is the one of, and some people may have seen it, but there's there's sort of there's three images that flow one after the other, and the first is there's a fence and there's a baseball game being played behind the fence, right? And there are three individuals. One individual is tall enough to see over the fence so he can see the baseball game. Mm-hmm. Another person is too short to see mm-hmm. over the fence, but you know, maybe like a foot too short. And then the third person's in a wheelchair. So only the tallest person can see over the fence. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, that's the depiction of like the reality of the world that we live in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that then would be maybe tagline inequality, like that there's, yeah, kind of to a certain extent. It's like, right. exactly. Starting points different. Exactly. And so then the equality model would say, okay, we see that there's this problem. 
what we're going to do is we're going to give everybody equal resources, right? Which sounds like a beautiful thing, right? Hand everyone the same book or hand everyone a basket of food or um, like the finished baby basket model, which actually I really love that every child who's born gets a box with enough supplies to, to take care of the child for a year. Um, little things like that, like they're, they're great and they're, they're well-intentioned and they're beautiful. But what happens is if you go, if you think of that image again, yeah. now everybody has a box. So the person who was tall enough to see in the first place, now he's just like basically able to jump over the fence. You know, right. the, the person in the middle who is too short, he can see over the fence, but the person in the wheelchair still can't. Right. So we didn't actually fix anything. All we did was give everyone the same thing. Yeah. Um, and that didn't make any difference for the person who could already see, right? So now they just have more stuff. And it also didn't help the person in the wheelchair to actually see the baseball game over the fence. Mm -hmm. All it did was elevate that person in the middle. So what, what we try to focus on instead is, is models of, of equity and models of justice um, or liberation. And what those models are would be um, allocating resources based on need. So the tall person, he doesn't need anything. He's fine. So there's no sense in, in, in allocating a resource to this yeah. person. The person in the middle, he just needed, he or she just needed the one box. So that's great. Give them the one box. The person in the wheelchair needs two boxes and probably a ramp to get up on top of the boxes in the first place. So let's do that. Yeah. And then in that way, now everybody can see the game. Everybody can see over the fence. Everybody needed different things, but the end goal of sight was achieved. Mm. Right. And that's sort of the model that we tend, we like people who work in community centered programming tend to work with right now because it's yes. what we can work with at the moment. Yes. A model of justice or liberation would be removing the fence. Uh -huh. Right. Um, so remove the barrier, remove whatever it is that's yeah. Separating. Yeah. Sorry. Ryder wants to say hello to the people outside. <laughs> that's all right. Hi, Ryder. Um, and, and that is a beautiful model. We, we love the liberation model and, and we should every, all of us should be striving for it, but it's what that is going to take is like really an upheaval of systems, right? That's, that's systemic change. That's change at the government level, change at like yes. the global policy level. Um, and so it's just a lot more work and it will require a lot more of us. I'm not saying that it's not worthy work. We're, yes. We should all be doing it. <laughs> yes, yes. But in the meantime, we're focusing on equity to at least make sure that people are, are in the same place. Yes. Um, and, and discernment on resource allocation. It sounds yes. like that that's really key. Let's take a look at the real, the, the challenge that we have in front of us. And let's really be smart about how these resources get right. allocated. Right. And, and that moves into then sort of the sustainability model that you had also mentioned, which is that it's not just about going around and making sure that everybody has enough food to eat. Right. Yeah. We could go around. I'm in Los Angeles right now. We could go around to L.A. and just hand out food every single day so that people had food to eat. Mm -hmm. And so great. Like now everybody has food to eat. But what happens tomorrow and what happens mm -hmm. the next day? And why would we want to create a system in which the people who don't have enough food to eat are always going to be dependent on us showing up. What happens if I'm sick and I can't go, you know? And so the goal for, for us at empowerment, the goal in the work that I, that I try to do in the aid world is more around community centered programming yeah. that focuses on the innate skills within that community to actually like take care of itself. And everybody has that, right? But because of the global misallocation of resources being access to healthcare, access to education, you know, in, in this country, in the US, it's, it goes back to colonialism and slavery and, you know, poverty and, and uh, incarceration and all these other systemic issues, right? Um, 
that require a different, just a different lens into the solution. And so the solution is more about empowering people to, to do this themselves, teaching a man to fish, if you will, yep. instead of just handing him the fish. Yep. Um, I love so, that. so that's where we are with like sustainable service and conscious activism is, is we're always going to make mistakes. We're all going to mess up, but if having the intention to work in that space, yes. Um, that will eventually lead to a, a larger disruption of the systems. Mm-hmm. And is that your, when we talk about hopes for the future, is that really what you see is how can we do yes and let's work on equity models because it's something we can do. And let's take a look at how do we partner with governments, with NGOs, with regards to the justice model or liberation? Um, or are you more focused on the equity and that's your piece and other people do justice? I mean, I think that my piece in terms of what I'm offering the world is in the equity model with the mm-hmm. hopes that then by, by um, giving people the space to reconnect to their own voice and their own power, that that will eventually, that that will lead to more systemic change. You know, I'm, anyone who's listening to your podcast, who's an activist, I'm sure that you are, are with me. I'm not sure. I imagine you're with me in like the frustration that sort of felt with like the way the hashtag waves and like, you know, things becoming popular for a minute. Let's just name it like black lives matter becomes popular for a minute. And then there's a new hashtag and everyone forgot that they were supposed to be anti-racist. And, you know, it's, that's the reality. And and for as long as I've been working in this, this world, I've seen it and I've seen it happen over and over. And so we need to remember that like the work isn't done because the hashtag changes it changes. Right. right? And so there is a part of me that feels like, my work isn't cut out to constantly remain in that space because it's so frustrating. And I'm, I'm not saying like, I have a lot of respect for the people that are in it. I want to do everything I can to support them yes. so that they can stay in it. And while also talking to people about the importance of being in it. Yeah. Um, and hoping that that is like my piece in helping to. And, and from back to what you said earlier too, caring for the people that are in it so that when we're taking a look at, you know, not getting burned out as quickly, being able to continue to be in that creative mode of like what's possible. It's a much different feeling and sensation than moving into feeling constricted and weighed down much more. I'm sure the creative ideation happens. Yeah, um, Can you think about um, a community that, um, you know, maybe there's some, there's some sort of a, um, I don't know, like a, um, a visual you can give us in terms of what uh, one of the communities has done and some and a leader that has just really fell into the sense of empowerment and um, what their progress has been. Oh, I have so many. Um, I have so many, but I'm going to share one um, that directly relates to something else I'm going to talk to you later. So awesome. um, we led a training in um, a camp called Malakasa in Greece uh-huh. Um, it was the last training we ran actually, um, before COVID. So it was in November of 2019 and it was, um, a group of Afghan women. Hmm. Um, and one of them, uh, I believe I can say her name cause she's on our YouTube site. Zahra has like really, really sat with the material and like, and really just like kept the manual and practice and, and continued to lead her community through all of the things that have gone on in Greece. You know, I don't know if you know this, but like a lot of nonprofits were kicked out of Greece because the government changed the rules around who could operate. And so there's, there've been a lot of problems there, even as the refugee community continues to grow. Um, And Zahra has been so engaged and now she um, is actually, has actually led several practices in Farsi 
um, for our YouTube site um, oh. and like has it taken on that role of like really leading people in, in, in grounding awareness act- activities. And, um, and so she's a really beautiful example. Um, and that's somebody who's sort of taken the yoga role. I mean, we've seen other, other people. We have um, some of our trainees in Palestine who have gone on to, to like become leaders in, um, in leading uh, a campaign to end child marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not necessarily like teaching self-regulation, but they found their voice. Yes. Um, and Isn't that the spark that-, that you are looking for, right? How is yeah. it that we create that spark? Oh, that's yeah. just incredible. Well, I'm sure that it has been a little challenging this year. Well, I don't, I don't say I'm sure, but you do that across the board, right? Yes. Um, and I, I know in your heart, like the feeling of wanting to go back to some of these places was really strong. So tell us a little bit about how you have pivoted with COVID, you know, either what the challenges are or what you've really created as opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, we unfortunately had to make the decision to cancel our first a training of the year, like three days before I was supposed to fly. It was, you know, March 13th, like the day before LA went into lockdown, I was supposed to be flying to Brazil three days later. And we had been, uh, our intention had been to run a train, two trainings in Rio de Janeiro, one with um, refugees and one with male um, survivors of addiction and homelessness. Mm-hmm. And so it felt really important to me, this work, it was going to be our first work in South America. And we canceled it because from our perspective, like it wasn't so much me being afraid of COVID because we still didn't know very much about COVID at that point. It was more from this ethical consideration that like, well, what if I get it on the plane and then take it into a vulnerable community and start an outbreak? And, and that's a very real ethical problem. Yes. Um, and so unfortunately we had to postpone all of our work for this year that was meant to take place there in Brazil and in Kenya and in, Mexico and in Jordan and, you know, all of these, these amazing locations. Um, and so the first thing that we, we sat with was, well, how can we continue to support these communities, right? There's still a need. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. A lot of the ways that seem obvious, we actually decided against. Um, so we decided that we couldn't do things virtually mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. First of all, because we, you know, none, we're not therapists. And so, And I don't know that a therapist would do this either. So I can only speak from my own experience, but you know, I didn't feel like we had the scope of practice or the ability to hold a space virtually Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, had the potential to bring people into like traumatic memories or or trauma responses that we weren't there to then refer them onwards to to therapists to make sure that they would stay safe. Yeah. Like you don't want to open the can of worms and then not be able to hold space and continue that progress. hundred percent. So that was our first concern. Um, and then we also, you know, there's logistical concerns. Like, you know, we, we kind of take for granted that we can just hop on the internet on our phones or that like a Wi-Fi outage is going to be fixed. Right. And in a lot of the countries that I work in, you know, take Kenya, for example, mobile data is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, especially if you're, if you're working with refugees or survivors of trafficking, there's, there's no guarantee that they have, they, even if I were to buy them mobile credit, right. The reality is that they would, I would likely be creating a a scenario in which they would gather together around one phone Mm -hmm. to access the work because that's just because of the nature of how expensive data is. And that felt unethical to me. Um, And so we have been, we've been trying to develop an app um, 
that would have a, a ton of practices as well as like a way to connect with each other that we, we could like buy enough data credit for our community leaders to let them download. Ah, got it. Um, we have not yet been able to bring that to fruition. So this was something that we, we've like designed the whole thing. We have all of the things ready, but we need an app designer who will do it for us. Right. It's very expensive. Um, so we're still working on that. We're, we're still, you know, applying for grants and trying to do that, but that was the best way we came up with to stay engaged with our local communities. Um, and we're still working on that. Uh, in terms of what else we could do, you know, the first thing that came to mind, the first thing that happened, uh, was that we got a request from a friend of ours who works within the NHS in the UK, who's um, a healthcare worker. And she was like, listen, we're all overstretched. Like we can't, there's so many yoga teachers offering us free classes, but we can't dedicate 90 minutes at a very specific time. Like we just need something we can do now. Uh And so we had a request to create the YouTube channel. Um, And what it is, is a collection of five to 60 minute resources that can be accessed anytime for free. Mm -hmm. Um, And a bunch of like, it's like self-regulation practices, you know, Mm -hmm. shaking five minute shakeout or, you know, stuff stuff that anyone can do anywhere. You don't even need a mat or a large room. Um, There's some guided meditations on there. Um, and then what happened with that that was very cool was as we reached out to more and more members of our community, we started to get stuff in all these different languages. So now oh, fantastic. we have like French and Spanish and Italian and Arabic and Farsi. And, and it's just a really beautiful um, collection uh, from that really reflects the diversity of our community um, yes. and the beauty in our community. So, so that's available. Um, and that's and available through your website. Is that right? Oh, the yes. Empowerment Project? Okay. Yes. We'll make sure to put that in speaker notes um, so that people will know how to access it because it sounds like that's just an amazing set of resources. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. And it also like highlights, you know, the work of, of other people doing this. So, so you know, you can, you can find a teacher and then go and find their YouTube site, um, yeah. for example. I love that. Um, there's stuff for kids on there. I mean, you know, it's because it's really beautiful and it's a living thing. So we're continuing to add resources as we get them. So, yeah. so that was the first way we pivoted. Uh, this was before we knew COVID was going to last the entire year. Um, <laughs> you know, the next thing that we did was we, um, we've had a focus for several years on training facilitators in helping us to do this work. So mm-hmm. we don't just train the communities. We also train people to come and work with us in the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been very important for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. I feel an ethical obligation to not just bring a yoga teacher into a refugee camp. I think that that's um, harmful to both the teacher and to the community. If, yes. if, the, if the teacher has no idea about how they're showing up in space and what they're going to encounter and what, how trauma shows up in a space. Yeah. So we have um, a facilitator training that we've been running for, for three years now. Um, and we decided to devote a little bit more attention to, to that work. Um, taking this time of COVID to really like help mm. other other facilitators to right. deepen their practice. That's amazing. Just to be able to do this <laughs> reflection and go deeper into the resources that you really think will have growing legs as yeah. we take a look going forward. Wow, that's Absolutely. wild. Yeah, because you know the reality is when when we come out of this, whenever that happens, the reality is that there are gonna be more people who need access to this work, not yes. less. Yes. Right. I mean, we all on some level need, need access to this work, no matter, you know, how much we've been affected by this or not. So, so yeah, so, you know, we have um, several online courses that are available through our website. We don't have any dates at the moment for anything live, but everything that's online can be accessed and run, um, you know, in your own time for anyone who's not completely done with zoom. 
uh, right. or the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put some pointers to that too for our audience because it's we really do want to make sure that we have you know this is a resource rich you know ability for us to really kind of see where everything is. And sure. you know what this really brings me to as we close this um, is that something that you had said at one point in time that I just really love and it's this thought that wellness should not be determined by geography, social status, ethnicity, access to finance or privilege. And so it sounds to me like where you were at four and what you just discussed, even in the midst of this global pandemic, is really around access and the importance of wellness for all. Absolutely. And so I love that you walk your talk, girl. Like, I just love that you're out there doing this in the world. It's amazing. Thank you. And can I just name one more thing? Please. Absolutely. I, so the other thing that we did this year is um, we launched the, the Speak Up Louder podcast. Um, and I don't know if it's like cool to talk about a podcast. Please podcast, do. No, but... we wanted to talk about that. <laughs> I noticed you had that going on. I'm like, I'm so excited. Speak I mean, look, any way we can support each other in that way. Yes. I think um, and, and that podcast has come from our, we've, since the beginning of us as an organization have wanted to elevate the voices of the, of the communities that we serve. It's felt really important to me. Um, I, you know, I've, I've met so many amazing individuals throughout my career and I've heard so many amazing stories. And then it's funny, like, then you hear them again, but like through a white voice at the UN and you're like, wait a second, like I heard that five years ago in Malawi, how come, you know, um, so there's that disconnect there because people aren't given a voice. They're not given a, a platform. And so through Speak Up Louder, what we wanted to do is elevate the stories of all of those that we serve who have a story they want to tell. I love it. Create that platform for them and create conversation around that platform. So yes. in the season that was just released, we have um, a conversation with um, a woman who was a refugee that we met in Nairobi. She's a refugee from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo who has recently resettled miraculously in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and so she tells a, a bit of her story, but then we also talk with people from Refugee where we met her and um, people like my friend Hala Khoury who, who talk more about like the importance of this work. And so yes. that's the other thing that has sort of you, happened for us this you year. you got some things going on and this is what we're talking about, right? It's like, let's go ahead and create that spark that is the beginning. And I love, because this is where we are with this podcast too. It's elevating, amplifying the voices of the individuals that are out there and realizing that, you know, you don't have to be out doing, like you said, solving world hunger, that you can do things that feel like they are in your heart space in terms of capability. And so I just love that you've been able to offer that. Now, as we close this, we have a set of collective questions that we ask all of our guests and it's just more like in the hot seat, super quick. Okay. So are you open to going through those? I'm ready. Okay. So currently, what are you currently reading or watching? <laughs> oh my God. I hate to say that I'm not reading anything at the moment because once I get off of computers, I can't look at more type. Um, what I'm watching is the most recent season of the crown. Okay. That's awesome. Maybe that was back to your London days, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bring you back. <laughs> so here's one you have been all over the world. And so I'm curious if you could eat a meal and have dialogue with anybody past or present, who would it be? Oh God. What a great question. I mean, Nelson Mandela is the first person that comes to mind, I think, especially in this current political climate of um, the Biden administration coming in and, and me feeling a real sense of him needing to, like, find his inner Mandela uh -huh. <laughs> to, to bridge the divisiveness in this country. It feels a little bit like a cheat of an answer because I feel like most people I love it, though. Mandela, but 
I love that thought about channeling your inner Mandela. That is a fantastic <laughs> way to think about stitching things together, really working on, you know, overall healing. Um, so you've talked to a lot about wellness and uh, I'm curious who supports you when you need a boost? Mm, community. Community. It's not an individual, but community. I have uh, an amazing group of friends and a lot of them are also healers. So that's yeah, awesome. that is helpful. That's awesome. And last question. What are you most grateful for today, Julia? I am so grateful that I am in a place. I have been in, for the last year in a place in this pandemic where I am safe. Mm -hmm. I am fed. I have a place to sleep and I'm with beautiful, beautiful humans. So yeah. even though I can't see most other humans, the ones that I'm living with right now are really, really amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that a lot of people don't have that right now. And I'm yes. so grateful that I do. Awesome. Thank you so much. You are such a treasure, such a gift. And we thank you so much for your time, Julia. I tell you what, it's just, I feel honored to have met you and uh, just really wanted to wish you also all the best. Keep safe, keep sane. Oh, thank and, you so much. Yeah. And so we'll put a bunch of um, links up to, you know, the website and whatnot. We really want to make sure to people know where to find you and how to support you. So um, is there anything kind of in that final little mode about how people can best support you aside from having an app design? or maybe call you and say, Hey, oh my gosh. <laughs> if I get designer out of this podcast, you are my new best friend. Um, <laughs> yes. If you know of anyone who's like starting an app design and wants to promote a project, yes. um, but, but you know, on a, on a smaller level, you know, we have a, a Patreon site that's, that's, you know, for the cup, the price of a cup of coffee every month, you can support our programming. Um, as we move forward into this next year, we're going to be doing a lot more local programming within LA and in London. Cool. Um, so, so that is, is restarting and, and we do need support. Um, yeah. And just, you know, follow us on Instagram, um, yeah. get uh, like sign up for our newsletter, stay, stay up to date on what we're doing. We're always looking for, for new voices, um, to join us and, and let us know what they think. So wonderful. Stay in touch. Okay. That sounds like a plan, girl. Thank you. Have Thank a wonderful you. day. Take care of yourself. Oh, you too. Oh. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have been here. Same here. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another impactful conversation. We hope you take some time to let the wisdom and stories of those who shared sink in. We welcome you to engage with us on our social channels at realize.love on Instagram, on our Facebook page, and via our virtual voicemail speak pipe. Links to both those can be found in the show notes below. Also special treat, be sure to check out our online resource hub for listeners that's right, for you, where you can gain access to resources to support you in making your own positive ripple effects, actualizing love. Until next time, be true, be real, be you.